0: Hello and welcome to another Growth Masters Federal podcast. Growth Masters Federal is a nationwide community of growth-oriented government contractors, their owners and executive teams, and the professionals who support them. The purpose is to share experiences and discuss timely topics on planning and executing the most effective growth strategies in the complex, highly regulated but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. Your host is Shirley Collier, President and Founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and prosper in the federal marketplace by developing and executing data-driven, customized business development playbooks. Today's discussion is on the Gage Annual Benchmarking Report of Federal Sector Contractors. Shirley's guest today is Kim Koster, Director of Product Marketing for UNINET, a cloud-based ERP system for project-driven organizations. Kim concentrates on thought leadership and market positioning, specifically in the areas of project management, accounting, and government contracting. Uninet partners with Konresnik to produce the annual Gage Report. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. I would like to welcome my special guest today, Kim Koster, Director of Product Marketing at UNINET. Hello, Kim.
2: Hello, Shirley, and thank you so much for having me today.
1: Our topic today is the Gauge Benchmarking Report. So, Kim, why should companies consider benchmarking as a part of their business
2: strategy? Well, Shirley, let's start off by level setting on exactly what benchmarking is. Now, it's simply looking at others' performance, their expenditures, policy, strategies, and then comparing them to your own organization. It truly is a great methodology to look both internally and externally to see what others are doing to be successful. Internal benchmarking across divisions, departments, or portfolios, it can be extremely helpful, but unfortunately it's not as common practice as you might think. Many companies are still very siloed. They have varying processes and procedures and disparate systems that make the exchange of information very difficult. So external benchmarking then can be very powerful, and there's really no prep or manipulation of the data, which ultimately will save money and time. So what does a company actually get from looking at external benchmarks? First, it gives a perspective of the overall industry. Second, it provides an understanding of what others are doing to be successful. Third is that it's going to produce ideas for improvement and get your creative juices going. The fourth is it's going to make you more competitive. And fifth, it's going to help you win more business and grow your organization. Shirley always heard, that sounds great, Kim, but where do I get this information? In helping government contractors plan and strategize, Conresmic and Uninet partnered to conduct a government contracting industry benchmarking survey. And we call it the Gage Report. We gathered information from many different types of contractors to help us define the current state of the government contracting industry today. And we included issues that are important to them. Now the gauge stands for government contract compliance, accounting, utilization, growth and efficiency. So the report is broken down by those categories. It's also broken down by revenue band, and there's various revenue bands like from zero to 25 million, 51 to 100, and others. Now, the reason that we broke the information down in those bands is so that you can easily access metrics that are for your size business. And as you grow, you can see what maybe that next revenue band, what their metrics look like. So very valuable information for where you are currently and where you want to be in the future. Now, our first annual report came out last September, and our second one is coming out this September. So the information that Shirley and I are talking about today, it really is a preliminary look into the upcoming report.
1: I really look forward to seeing that report, Kim. So in the survey, I'm sure you asked people about how they feel about the government contracting market. Can you generally characterize their views?
2: I think in one word, Shirley, the characterization is optimistic. People are very optimistic in this market today. Now, the landscape is ever-changing, but, you know, we've gotten used to that change and churn. It's really just become a fact of life. But being able to understand, manage, and adapt to that change are the keys to success for federal contracting, especially in the upcoming years. Now, winning new business and being able to fill that opportunity pipeline is definitely fueling optimism. However, with this ever-changing environment are the highs and lows of the current federal budget process, where... We have increasing budgets that are set for two years versus one. Yay, that's awesome. Right. But shutdown showdowns continue to be the norm instead of the exception. So, Shirley, if you don't mind, I'd like to share some of the results from our survey that really support the increased optimism that we're seeing. So the first is that 75% of the companies surveyed said that they're going to increase their headcount. Wow. 20%, I know it's huge, isn't it? 20% Twenty percent say that they're going to stay the same, and only five percent of the companies believe that they're going to decrease their headcount you know to me that's that's great news. The next statistic, ten percent of the respondents were very optimistic fifty five were cautiously optimistic now these numbers too probably would have been a little bit higher, but at the time that we did the survey, we still had a lot of chaos in the federal government so uh you know. Funding, shutdowns, things like that were top of mind. But so I think overall for that, to have 65% of the respondents be optimistic uh, was a a very good indicator of where the market was going.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, we had 16.5 that were neutral and really only 16.5 that were pessimistic, with just a very small, minute percentage being very pessimistic. We talked about filling the pipeline and why that was fueling the optimism. You know one really cool statistic said that sixty percent said that their revenue had increased from the previous year and ten percent had no change. Fixed price contracts are on the rise. So there's a need to truly understand the scope that you're bidding up front and you need to be able to execute to your plan.
1: Absolutely. So that is a lot of optimism but I'm sure that there were some that expressed concerns. So what were those?
2: Well, the biggest concern were funding constraints, and that was 55% of the respondents uh, said that that was a a big concern for them, and 33% said lack of talent. Now, we asked for comments also within this section, so I'd like to go over a couple of those with you. Okay. First was, the issue was navigating small to large business, and then how do we propose new opportunities competitively now that we're out of the 8A program? We also saw concerns around government units not funding awarded contracts on a timely basis, and we continue to hear that competition is tough, so a lot of notes around competition. Interestingly enough, too, we continue to have that unpredictability of the contract selection and the RFP process, and we talked about talent. Um, lack of qualified talent is, you know, it's, it's a sy- systemic problem. It's out there. Um, but also, in this particular industry, we're looking at talent that also has a security clearance. And without a, a security clearance already in place, it could take weeks or months to get that clearance and get the resources in that you need. There's also been an emphasis on price over qualifications in federal procurement, and people are still concerned, surely, about the low-price, technically accepted, acceptable bidding environment.
1: Those are a lot of issues. but. What is really keeping executives up at night these days?
2: Well, the number one issue was competition. And that's something that I think um, we can expect, especially when everybody's really working now to, to grow their business. The second item that's causing sleepless nights is operational effectiveness. So two very completely different issues on the overall spectrum. One is really filling the funnel with opportunities, and the other is executing for getting the needed revenue and margin that the company needs, but most importantly, to deliver a product or service that the customer needs. And it really just shows the breadth that the executive teams have. They really have a huge job, Shirley.
1: They do. (laughs) They do. So let's take time to talk about filling the pipeline with new opportunities, which is important to all contractors.
2: Yeah, Shirley, as you well know, managing the opportunity pipeline is absolutely critical. You know, that pipeline is an indication of the trajectory of the business. And when building the pipeline, there are a couple of items that I think people should consider. First, do you have a structured capture process? Very important. You know, do you know what your growth goals are? You know, what what are you trying to deliver? What projects do you need in order to meet those growth goals? You know, is it time to look to diversify? You know, And as you're looking at the past, it's is an indicator of the future. So, how well are you performing on certain projects uh, with particular types of scope? Now, as you look to, you might want to be thinking about government versus commercial or maybe you want a mix of the two. You know, or is it time that you sit and look and say, "Hmm, we really need to look at a new product or a new service to deliver." The other thing that we want to consider in the pipeline is do we have the resources in place to do the jobs Or do we need to hire? So, you know, and think about that in context of the shortage, the talent shortage that we just discussed. So, really, why the pipeline is so important is, again, that it is that basis for revenue forecast and resource needs for all the future projects that you're going to bid and that you're executing today. The Opportunity Pipeline is a major contributor for several different company forecasts, the first being the annual operating plan or the AOP, and that's really the short-term forecast for all the major financial metrics that the business needs to be looking at. The second one would be the long-range plan. So that may be from two to five years, depending on what your business needs, but you'll have a lot of granularity on the front end of that plan, and then it'll become more general as we go. Having that opportunity pipeline, as correct as you can get it, is very important for understanding where your company is going.
1: All right. Um, So this is very important, Kim, the importance of a pipeline in government contracting. But what are the ways that government contractors can make sure that they are on the right path?
2: Well, the best way is to be able to model scenarios. And we sometimes call that what-if thing. And it's really a great way to make sure that you're picking the right path and that you're maximizing all of your resources. For example, you might ask, what if my rates change? What if they go up or down? And can I see that? Can I see the impact of that? What if we outsource instead of using our internal labor? Is that going to save us money, or is it going to provide us the opportunity to use in-house resources? You know, it's really just a series of looking at different trade-offs and then being able to calculate the effect of those trade-offs. Now, we talked a little bit about forecasting a minute ago, but when I'm forecasting a long-range plan, we may want to use something called factoring, and that's going to help account for uncertainty. One method we can use for factoring is the POA, or the probability of award. Now, having a system that's going to allow for that what if and factoring, is going to play a huge role in the accuracy of your forecast. So the POA methodology can be a great tool for looking at project and portfolio-level analysis. But sometimes at the lower levels of analysis, you may want to go ahead and recognize whether you believe that uh, effort is going to be won or lost. And we might call that the expected value. So that might be something like 100-0, 80-20, or another percentage. The expected value will be more precise and should be utilized for near-term work where you're really certain of the award. And forecasts are used in many ways throughout the business, and multiple methods may be needed to manage the breadth of your overall organization. Now, surely the next point I'm going to make is very obvious, but near-term forecasts are more accurate than long-term forecasts since there's more visibility into the scope, schedule, current economic conditions resource availability etc so looking into the future is more difficult and the level of granularity of the forecast will be less detailed since many long term projects are still in the proposal phase or in the crystal ball phase in a long range plan there may be many unknown unknowns now we did ask in our survey what were the biggest project management challenges And forecasting and resource management that we were just talking about were number two and number three in our survey.
1: Oh, I can believe that. I always advise my clients to do forecasting, and it's like deer in the headlights. Uh, it's, It's very difficult, I think, for many businesses, especially small businesses, to get a grip on this very important topic. So what are some of the other forecasting techniques that you can utilize for your pipeline?
2: So another one of my favorites is grouping projects. And grouping projects that sometimes makes it a lot easier to forecast, especially when you're looking in the two- to five-year time period. So you may have a grouping that is programs, clients, products, business units, portfolios, or departments. And you can look at these forecasts in aggregate and then derive an actual forecast because you truly understand the client demand, what your capacity is, and what your growth potential is. Now, forecasting using constraints and other pertinent information can make for a really great forecast. Now, using very detailed forecasts in the long term, it's going to take lots of time and it won't be accurate. So save the detailed forecasting for the zero to two-year time period where you have a high level of confidence in what's happening and save the groupings and the more general forecasting for two years and out. Also, as you're doing your forecast, make sure that you have a sanity check on it. So C-suite members, project teams, they may need to work together to decide what the level of forecasting should be and what the purpose is that that forecast is going to be utilized for. And I'll just give you a quick example, Shirley. So, you know, an annual operating plan, again, it's a short-term forecast and you need a lot of granularity. Now, the LRP or the long-range plan well, we may need to use detailed forecasting on a short period of time and then utilize grouping for the out years, for instance. So, one other thing that people need to think about in their forecasting is how often do we want to update it and who do we need to provide that input? I think that's very important because there's so many stakeholders in the forecasting, overall forecasting process. Now, one other important aspect of forecasting is labor resources. So, and again, you want to make sure that you know what resources are needed and when, and then what the skill or certification is that you need. So it's very important that you really take a hard look at your resources starting in the bid phase all the way through project execution so that you make sure that you're not missing a critical skill.
1: That is a very important discipline. So, what are some examples of key performance indicators for the pipeline?
2: One of my favorite is called a pipeline snapshot. And that's where I can go in and look at what the pipeline was at the same time last year um, or compare year over year, month over month, quarter over quarter. And I can also do that by gate. So, you know, whatever the stage gates are on your capture process, be able to look at what's in each one of those gates, what customers are there, and what the total value is. Some other great ones are, you know, bid-to-win ratio, bid-to-loss, Also, what's the length of the sales process? So you should be able to look at that sales process and say, hey, this small project, if I'm bidding a small project, it may take me zero to six months of lead time. If I've got a larger project, it may be nine months to 18 months. So it will give you an idea of when you need to back up in your pipeline forecast to understand when you need to bid different types of contracts. You also want to look at labor utilization, skill set utilization. And then one other key factor here is rates. Rates really do make a difference in whether or not you're going to win or lose. So being able to look at that rate analysis year over year. And there's only two more that I want to mention. One would be the growth rate, and the other would be looking at the compounded annual growth rate, or what they call CAGR.
1: Yeah, those are all very important. You know, when I, I deal with my clients, they many times just talk about increasing revenue, increasing revenue, but I try to help them understand that they really are looking for profitable growth. So these key performance indicators, I think, are critical for profitability. So, Kim, going back to the report, what were the growth rates reported by the respondents?
2: Well, I thought they were really pretty excellent. Um... Forty-five percent of the respondents reported that their growth rate was between zero and nine percent. Twenty-seven said that they were growing 10 to 24 percent. And fifteen said that they were blowing it out of the park, Shirley, at 25 to 50 percent. Those are huge. Wow. And only 13 percent were contracting. So I think that was really great numbers and great news for our market.
1: That is really good. Did you by any chance ask what the projected growth rate was for the upcoming year?
2: We did, and uh, interestingly enough, now only 4% believed that they would have a contraction or negative growth. 32% believed that they would grow 0 to 9, and the big difference was in the 10 to 24% with 48% people projecting that that's where they would be from a growth rate perspective, and only 16% believed that they would grow 25 to 50. So Optimism truly is the undercurrent in all the information that came out on the report.
1: Uh, it looks that way. So winning new business is obviously critical. So what is a good win rate?
2: Well, on the report, 41% of our respondents said that they were winning 26 to 50% of the time that they submit a bid. And 25 said that they were winning more than 51% of the time. Now, the big concern I had, Shirley, was that 32% reported only winning 25% or less of the bids that they're submitting. So those folks may really need to take a look at their overall capture strategy.
1: Yeah, they're spending a lot of money on proposals and not getting a return on that investment.
2: Exactly.
1: So did the respondents report a change in win rates?
2: Well, 51% reported no change. Now, 30% did report an increase, and only 19% said their win rates actually decreased. So win rates aren't changing much, but it seems to me that if we had a strategic capture process in place at those organizations, their win rates could definitely be increased. This seems to be an area to me, even though it's very positive, that seems to be something that could be improved upon.
1: Yes, I would agree. So, business development teams are responsible for filling the pipeline. What are their biggest reported challenges?
2: By far, the biggest challenge is lack of funding for BD resources, and you know this has been an issue for as long as I've been in the business. And um, and the reason is, I believe it's just because they're indirect, and we just people just yeah. don't want to fund that indirect activity, even though it's such a critical part of the overall business. We've just talked about how. Filling that pipeline really is the trajectory of the business, and uh, a lot of people just don't see the value of of putting those BD folks in early and often. Now, the second biggest challenge was lack of a teaming partner, and I think over the years, we've recognized that having that partner really will help mitigate risk and open up new markets. So being able to find that teaming partner to enter uh, into a new product or service truly is critical for people.
1: Yes, I would agree, especially as the government begins to utilize IDIQs and GWACs more and more often. Exactly. So, uh, Kim, what financial challenges should be addressed in the bid and proposal cycle?
2: In the report itself, we asked what were the biggest finance challenges. And in the bid and proposal cycle, we need to be thinking about those metrics also, thinking about what our strategic goals are. So, some of the top finance issues should definitely be considered throughout the entire process. So keep in mind, what profit are we looking for? What's the growth rate we're looking for? We have to account for cash flow. So a complete understanding of those metrics really will help executives make good decisions about what to bid, and it really will help chart then the growth path. Do we want to use organic growth, or do we look to M&A to grow our business?
1: So what profit should a gov contracting business be expecting?
2: The majority of our respondents at forty seven percent are in the range of seven to fourteen percent profitability. Thirty-eight percent of the respondents showed zero to six. Now with more fixed price contracting on the horizon, it's gonna be important to have better planning in the bid phase and to have tremendous levels of scope comprehension. Uh, before we actually go off and have to execute the projects themselves.
1: So how can government contractors be more competitive?
2: Oh, Shirley, there's so many ways, but the one that sticks out in my mind is that we need to be lowering our GNA expenditures and really getting a bang for the buck for the resources that we have. Now, one way to lower those G&A rates is to minimize the number of back office FTEs it takes to run business systems. So having the right tools for your organization and really making the most of those tools will help the back office team be more productive and they'll also be able to provide better decision-making information and reports to all the stakeholders. Now, in our survey, uh, we showed the difference in GNA FTEs between the different tool sets that are used down in the government contracting arena, and there's a significant difference in the tool that you pick. It's a very important choice that you're going to make for your business.
1: So how important is project performance?
2: Well, past and, and current project performance and on-time delivery are factors that customers are looking for when they're awarding new contracts. You know, they want to see how well you've performed in the past. And we can see through the results that there's been a lot of attention paid to project performance. So 55% of our respondents reported that 76 to 100% of their projects are on budget. That's huge. And then this next one is really amazing, Shirley, that 77.32 of the respondents say that they are 76 to 100% on schedule. Wow. Wow is right. (laughs) So what was also of note that I thought was interesting is that 76% of these respondents believe that they had some level of maturity in project management, and 60% believe that they had... Some level of maturity when managing the resources. So these are just absolutely great numbers, and in my opinion, this shows that maturing your people, processes, and tools really will pay off in bid accuracy, project execution, and your overall win ratio. So I love to see this cycle overall being so successful.
1: Oh, I do too. Uh, so a lot of companies though struggle with uh, project management and PMO. So where does the project management office? PMO start and end?
2: The the PMO should have a role in defining best practices and then incorporating those best practices into policies and procedures. And, Shirley, I think that really needs to start at the beginning of the project lifecycle, so really at the bid phase. We're seeing a resurgence of the PMO. Now, PMI puts out a report. It's called Pulse of the Profession. It shows that the number of companies that have a PMO are continuing to increase. Now, our survey showed that 67% of the organizations have a PMO. Now, 40% of those were centralized, and 27% were decentralized.
1: So, to wrap up our discussion today, Kim, I'd like for you to explain the difference between centralized and decentralized.
2: Well, centralized or enterprise PMO really means it's supporting the entire enterprise. So the policies and procedures are all the same for all different projects. And hopefully the PMO has thought about making sure that those policies and procedures are tailorable. Now, the PMOs are, too, delivering and defining and evolving that project management path for every single type and size of project within the enterprise. Now, decentralized PMOs are really centered around a program or a project and they serve those specifically,
1: certainly. So, Kim, thank you so much for sharing these results. We look forward to getting a copy of the report in September. So, for more information on UNINET or to receive a copy of the Gage Report, go to UNINET.com. That's U-N-A-N-E-T Our guest today was Kim Koster. She can be reached at kcoster at UNINET.com. This is Shirley Collier with Scale to Market, signing off for now.
0: Thank you for joining us today. For more information on how to grow your business in the federal marketplace, visit our website at scaletomarket.com. That's scale number two market.com. And subscribe to the Growth Masters Federal channel on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us again soon and have a great day.